and welcome to episode 23 of Penny Red. My name is Daniel Hodges, writer and designer of Victoria, and your host. If you'd like more information about the game, go to hazardgaming.com. And for information about the podcast, as well as show notes and other episodes, go to pennyredpodcast.com. This week inside the Roleplay Studio, I have Michelle McNeil. You may be familiar with Michelle's Theatre Arcanos LARP troupe if you're into LARPing anywhere up and down the western seaboard of the US. Specifically, you may know her troupe from Dundercon, Baycon, Big Bad Con, and Worldcon Reno, aka Renovation. And you may also be familiar with them as the special LARP guests at GameStorm in Vancouver, Washington. So without further ado, hi there Michelle, how's it going? Doing pretty well. It's good to hear. Um, so that everybody can get a feeling for um, where you're uh, coming from and where you're at right now for the purposes of context, for the, the sort of inside the role player studio section of the, of the interview, how long have you been a role player? I'm thinking about 25 years. I started gaming in junior high school, so somewhere around 12 or 13, and have been playing since. Right. So uh, how did you get started? Well, my mom's sister started playing Dungeons and Dragons back when it was still a eight and a half by eleven folded sheet of paper uh, right. booklet. Um, she started playing in the seventies, um, and she got me into it pretty young. I, you know, eleven, twelve, thirteen, something like that. Right. Um, and so I started going with her to games and conventions. As a child. Right. Um, we started by playing Dungeons and Dragons. My first character was a magic user. Um, she was an elf. She had purple eyes and black hair and a flying cat. I did get better, I swear. <laughs> the flying cat sounds fascinating. <laughs> I was 12. Sure. Did, um, and did that first session go okay? I, a number of people that have come on the show so far have talked about uh, their horrific first sessions. Um, uh, but stuck with the, with the hobby amazingly. Did anything nasty happen to your uh, uh, witch with the uh, flying cat? Not that I can remember. Uh, you know, it was funny. I actually, m- my brother and my cousin, we played too. And a couple of years ago, I wound up actually pulling up um, the child of one of my cousin's characters right. to run in a D&D game just it was like, okay, yeah, we all, you know, got our castles and became lords of our land and went on to do our glorious things. And, right. you know, 20 years later, it's like, oh, by the way, um, yeah, you have 10 kids and this is the youngest. Right, right. And just going back to the flying cat momentarily, is there any particular reason why you chose the cat to be the uh, the flying part of the duo? Is there any reason why you didn't want the witch to fly? Um, I'm a cat person. Oh, I see. So it was a, it was a familiar with uh, special abilities. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Um, and so after you played Dungeons and Dragons, um, mm-hmm. then what did you play? A lot of things. I played Traveler for a while, GURPS, uh, Rifts. Um, I'm trying to think. I played Paranoia a couple of times, Teenagers from Outer Space. Um, you know, just about everything. It, I didn't really find my game until World of Darkness came out, though. Right. And which part of the World of Darkness uh, did you um, particularly gravitate towards? My very favorite one is Werewolf. Right. I have always loved Werewolf the Apocalypse. I love the meta plot that comes with it, with the whole Defenders of Gaia and that. And that was just... 
it, that was what resonated with me from that system. Right. That's one of the ideas um, that I've talked about before, this idea of there being a, uh, a role-playing soulmate. And uh, from your description, it sounds like Werewolf uh, was that for you. I'm not sure if it, uh, if it still is, but... Uh, would you would you say that that's uh, accurate? Like, is, is, do you feel like Werewolf just uh, fits you? Probably. It's the it's the game that I've had the most fun with. Um, you know, I like Vampire too. I never really got into Changeling. Never really got into Wraith or Mage. But Werewolf and Vampire, I played a lot. Right. And what particularly about? Um, those other games didn't appeal to you because I, my favorite game from the series is probably Mage, but I'm very interested to to try out Wraith. I'm not sure how familiar you are with uh, games like, say, Fiasco or any of the the games that sort of have a little bit more of a blurred line between GMs and players. But one of the parts of Wraith um, was this idea of the shadow. Did you ever actually play Wraith? I never did. We never got a group together to do it. So, you know, I, I had the books, I read them, but never had a group that was interested in playing. Um, I'm really keen to find somebody that has um, played Wraith and has experience with that, and also some of the newer indie games, because I'm my um, an idea that's sort of slowly forming in my head is that this idea of the shadow, which is a big part of Wraith, was sort of an idea that was ahead of its time. Because with the new, with these uh, some of these indie games, like I say, you know, um, Deadlands and uh, Fiasco, and, and these games where there's this sort of blurred line, uh, and you need to have a lot of trust between the players, and they're all interested in creating the best story, and the GM facilitates to a to a lesser or a greater extent, depending on the the group of people that you have together. This idea of the shadow, which really was the anti you, if you like, it was intent on trying to make all of your worst dreams uh, come true. Um, that idea was was at least to me that was sort of unique to that that book, and I wasn't ever with a group that uh, first of all was interested in playing Wraith, but I'm not entirely sure that if we did decide to play Wraith that it would have uh, would have necessarily worked out because of the sort of maturity that's required and also the balance that you need to strike between forwarding the story and um, sort of trying to achieve the goals of your, uh, your shadow or somebody else's shadow as it is. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, you had the world of darkness, and you didn't really get into changeling or or mage, but you liked uh, werewolf and uh, and vampire. Um, yeah. And then from the world of darkness, did you um, stick with that and, and keep on with the with the new versions of well, the world no, of darkness? No new world of darkness. I'm I'm old school classic world of darkness. Right. Um, you know, I'm still running a forum based vampire game. Um, we've been running for about two and a half years. Um, and it's, you know, I've blurred the line between the different, it, it's a mostly vampire werewolf game. And then I throw, I kind of threw out all the rules from Mage and Changeling and wrote my own. Right. So, um, it, you know, it's a mixed World of Darkness game. Right. And did you play the um, Mind's Eye Theater or whatever the, uh, the werewolf version of the LARPs were? I, I did. Um, I played in a, in a Mind's Eye Theater game, um in Sacramento for about three years. Um, my character was Willow Reardon. She was the Garu Alpha of the Sept. Right. Um, and she wound up meeting and falling in love with the Nosferatu Primogen. Right. Um, the Nosferatu Primogen was Joshua Sanderson. Right. And he was played by the man that is now my husband. Oh, that was uh, fortuitous, or was that all part of the courting procedure? 
it, I think it was part of the courting procedure. The characters definitely fell in love before we did, though. Right. So. There you go. Uh, That's serendipity, then. We'll put it down to serendipity. You know, it was, because the, the night that they did the game reset, where they just, where they let us draw the chips to see who got to play the elder characters. The chance, what were the chances of us both, both drawing those chips? Well, that's right, yeah. I, I'm not really familiar with it. I didn't know that it was necessarily something that uh, you drew. My suspicion were that uh, you, or maybe you can um, give me a few details here, but I, I always thought that that type of uh, role, although initially was was probably set by the, the storyteller or whatever it's called within Mind's Eye, Eye Theatre. Um, yeah, usually it would be. But in this case, they they did it. They assigned it randomly. Right, and and then subsequent to that, though, were you able to like try and gather votes up that were part of the the council and you know like overthrow people? And it was all that part of the oh, game, or were you supposed there, to leave that alone? There was all sorts of overthrowing going on. That's that's the fun of the Mind's Eye Theater games right. is all of the politics. Um, so, and so within that, um, is there? Uh, does the does the storyteller need to sort of let the cards fall where they may in terms of the the votes and all that type of stuff, or does the storyteller have a really um, or a somewhat uh, strong control over you know what's actually going to play out in any given LARP session, or is it just basically once he sets the ball rolling, it's just a matter of standing back and watching what happens and adjudicating in any disagreements? You know, when I run a World of Darkness LARP, I basically just let let the players it's almost entirely player driven plot um we do very very little uh storyteller driven plot just simply because when you get especially if you get a large enough game you hit this sweet point where all of the characters personal motivations and goals are going to conflict with one another and create plenty of conflict without having to having the gm needing to interfere much at all you just sort of sit back and watch it unfold right um, and what is that magic number? You know, it depends. It, I'd say the best games I've run have been two GMs and maybe 25 players for a World of Darkness ongoing LARP with a lot of, with a lot of player-driven plot. Um, for the one-shot one con, con LARPs that I've been running lately, we try and have a six-to-one ratio um, with uh, GMs and players, so about right. 20 players and three GMs is how we run those. Right, and is it the ratio of GMs to players that's significant, or is it um, the total number of players that's significant, or is there a, sort of a synergy between the two? It, it all depends. Um, you know, we ran a game at Bacon last weekend. Uh, we ran Summit Arcane, which is one of our Dresden Files LARPs. Um, it's the first one we wrote, and this was, I think, the sixth time we've run it. Um, and it devolved into a bloodbath. Right. And we had we had nine of the twenty five characters that we were running with that night died. Right. In the course of the game, and you know that doesn't mean that they're out of the game because we always then hand them hand them a, a little white streamer and say, okay, now you're a ghost. Right. You know, Go go see if you can further your agenda. Right. But you know when it the way it devolved into the just giant mass combats. Even with we had twenty five players, five GMs, and it still wasn't enough. Uh, right. We had people who were having to wait through time bubbles, and it was just it was a mess. Um, right. So it you know it does depend if 
it's an almost no combat game. I could probably run twenty five players with two GMs. Right. Um, but the second that second the bullets and guns and claws start flying, you've got a whole different situation. Right. So I'm imagining that at a convention, that's where you're going to get the largest proportion of people in a LARP that are not a familiar with LARP games, or at the very least are don't usually do LARP games and maybe they're just going along for something different to do. Is there any advice that you'd have for somebody who's a, a reasonably experienced um, tabletop role player but who's going to try a LARP for the first time? Hmm. Be ready to have it go in a completely different direction than what you were, what you were planning. Right. Uh, you know, if if a central character gets killed off in the first 30 minutes of the game, don't panic because it doesn't mean that the game isn't going to be amazing. Um, we, we've had that happen, right. um, and it was one of the best runs we've had. Um, let's see what else. Don't panic is the biggest is, is the biggest advice. The other thing that I'm really careful to do because we we run the LARP games or the the con LARPs with pre-generated characters. Right. Is make sure you make characters for all kinds of players. Right. Um, you know, our game, we've got characters that are written for more wallflower players who are going to be really happy just to mostly sit back and watch. Right. And then we've got the characters for the people who are going to be right up in the middle of things um, and a central part of the plot. And make sure that you're ready to deal with more than one kind of player. Right. You talked about time bubbles earlier on, and I know that from my own experience of LARPs in relation to tabletop role-playing, when it comes to tabletop role-playing, people operating at different times, it's uh, it's the part of, part of the course for the most part. But in a LARP, you know, like the live-action aspect of it, um, it can sometimes feel like the game is passing you by because you're not able to enact what it is that you want to do within what's essentially, you know, elapsed time is game time. Is there, um, is that help where time bubbles come in or? Well, the other thing that, the other place that it comes in is anytime you've got creatures that are moving faster than is humanly possible. Right. And so you've got, when, whenever you, you wind up with a combat round is not going, no matter what, it's not going to take, you know, the, we timed it the other day. We got out a buffer sword and timed it. It was, I think you can hit somebody about 15 times in one minute if they're not defending themselves. Right. Um, and there's, there's no way to do 15 strikes in a minute. So you, anytime there's going to be a fight in a LARP, especially in a large LARP, you're going to have slowdowns. And it's, it, you know, it's the biggest challenge for running a, running a LARP game. Right. And if anybody's got any brilliant ideas on how to handle it better than just a no, you know, you can take three steps this round, you can take six steps this round. We just move it through as quickly as we can. I'd love to hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, that sounds like one of the trickiest things to do. And another question I've got, and this may be going on another step further, you mentioned boffer swords. And uh, is there any overlap between um, the sort of like the boffer sword fighting type stuff and LARPing where your personal skill with a sword has any kind of game effect? Not in our games. Um, there are certainly games that, you know, Alliance and um, try, I'm blanking on the name of the other the other one. Um, but there, there are a bunch of um, boffer, boffer LARPs. Um, we've got a Firefly game in the Bay Area that runs with Nerf, Nerf 
guns and boffer swords and um, a bunch of fantasy gamers. And that, that's one kind of LARPing. Um, the games I run, I want my friend who is in a wheelchair to be able to walk into the room and play the greatest swordsman in the world. Sure. Um, I, absolutely. I understand that uh, that aspect of it. I know that there's, you know, there's... When you, if you're doing a LARP or you're doing a regular role-playing game, you know the actual skills of the person are irrelevant. I was just curious to know if such hybrid exists, and, and it sounds like they do. But yeah, they um, do. Um, you know, I used to play back in like the late '80s, early '90s in the IFGS games, which is, you know, they they do uh, simulations with like you've got a electronic maze that you have to work um work a loop over this maze of wire without touching it to pick a lock um right and they did a lot of boffer combat um my aunt got really into that i never liked it as much um because i just i just i can't get the same level of disconnect i'd rather i'd rather be doing it with with dice um sure and so that's we run our games rather than with paper scissors rock we use a die we use a dice resolution um we have just like this little pocket um little pocket dome with that with two dice in it and that's that's how we do our resolution right because it's more randomized than paper scissors rock um which really isn't once you've got this once you've got the tricks of that down it's not random anymore yes Um, yeah, I remember a, an episode of, uh, or not episode, uh, sorry, a, a James Bond book. I, th- I don't, I think it might have been Doctor No. I'm not entirely sure where there was this ridiculous scene where James Bond was doing rock paper scissors with some um, some villain or other, and they were talking about the psychology of it there. But yeah, I think is it, is it men always throw a rock first, or you can rely on men to throw a rock first? Is that how it goes? Or and then women throw something other else first? And there's a certain psychology to playing. Um, you know, I know purposes. I reflexively throw scissors first every time. Right. So, um, and I can't, like, I, I, I have to consciously concentrate in order to not do it. And so, right. you know, when we, when we were writing the rules for, for the Theater Arcanos games, um, we, we, we threw around, because we, we started with the World of Darkness. Um, we are actually using tabletop rules, um, right. slightly kit-bashed, and yes. have then morphed the game so it, it, it very little resembles the world of darkness games very little at this point right. uh, but that that was kind of our starting point and we found that you know no trying to do that paper scissors rock it just didn't give random results and you you wind up with people saying no no that you know he he delayed his throw whatever it, it doesn't work right um yeah, that was one of the things that I, I did quite a bit of work on uh, for my game was looking at the resolution system and mm-hmm. through a lot of um, different bits of mathematics that I did, some with some, some help from a, a chap, C.R. Greathouse from uh, from Wikipedia, who wrote a number of mathematics articles, um, you know, it... Uh, it crystallised my ideas about randomness and I subsequently sort of came up with this, uh, the three rolls was about the right number of rolls to, to resolve anything. It allowed a certain amount of drama, but it wasn't all over with one roll. Because if you do the mathematics, then any particular conflict, if you know um, all of the various um, things that contribute towards either person's score, you can reduce everything to a single roll. And I guess that that same thing is true for, for LARPs. But do you find that there's any, um, that it creates any drama having multiple roles for something, or do you resolve everything with a single roll between people and then that's the end of it? 
what we're trying to do is get it done as quickly as possible and right. get back to the role playing aspect. So we do a single role. Right. Um, now in a tabletop game, when you when you're in a slightly different situation, we are not standing there in costume wanting to get back into playing. Right. It's different. You know, I I have. A LARP system, in my mind, LARP systems need to be sim- way simpler than tabletop systems. Sure. Um, which is one of the reasons that we started with um, the World of Darkness games um, and, you know, expanded and deleted from there to make a good LARP system is because the World of Darkness games are so very simple. Right. And so just one final question about LARPs. If you are able to resolve a combat with a single role, how does that mesh with this idea of how much people can move and hit rounds and all that type of stuff? It's possible to resolve a combat in a single round if you can hit them hard enough. Uh, um, I see what you're saying, you know, right? So it's not just always one role, it's a number of roles potentially. Yeah, some, oh. you know, we had a couple of combats that went like five roles. Um, right. in this last game between, you know, supernatural resistance to damage and, um, super speed, super strength. Right. Um, and, and when you're working in a, a, any kind of setting where you've got the supernatural creatures, you're going to have to deal with that. Right. Um, okay. So in terms of tabletop games, then, uh, you played, uh, the world of darkness type stuff and what games do you play now? Recently... The last game I played was, it was a three-year-long uh, Serenity campaign. Right. Um, and I really actually liked the Cortex system. I loved the fact that the players, with, with the, um, what were they called? Fate points, I think. Um, no, not fate points. Uh, I, I, the I'm drama not, points, is it? Uh, it it's, some, it's some sort of plot point yes. something that yes. where you get... Like six points, which you can use to then impact. Like, okay, you're coming up on this space station. I'm going to spend all six of my points so that the commander of the space station is someone I served with back in the, um, you know, back in the big war. Right. Um, and as an old friend of mine. Sure. Um, and I really liked that. Like, it, it was really interesting. Some of the games that I ran, because um, the way we played that game, it was interesting. We had. I want to say like seven players in the game and we took turns running the game. Um, So, you know, one month it would be, I'd be running the next month. My husband would pick it up Uh, the next month. One of the, one of the other people would pick it up and we would, we would all, you know, it was, it was, well, there was some continuing story arcs. Each episode got picked up by a different GM. Right. Um, and you know what you were saying earlier with the with the level of trust between GM and players that was kind of, we kind of hit this sweet spot with that and it was a lot of fun right um, where the players were just as just as important to the overall plot of the game as the GM right um, and it was really fun yeah and that internal consistency I think goes a long way towards allowing that sort of thing to happen right mm-hmm. And also, the, and also the trust is another big, uh, another big part of it. And that may come into one of the other questions uh, mm-hmm. later on. So, um, and here's the question that I reserve especially for, uh, for girls because I find the idea of it uh, fascinating. Did, when you were first role-playing, I'm not sure if you always played with your, your aunt or whether you, know, you got into other gaming groups, but um, were you ever in a situation where um, boys didn't want you to play? Like they figured role-playing was for boys or you know, girls weren't allowed to play or if they were allowed to play, they were playing under sufferance and they tried to, to get rid of them as quickly as possible? 
You know, it wasn't so much when I was first starting out, though it was really interesting. You know, back when I was like 15, 16 years old, I'd go to conventions and I'd be the only girl there other than my aunt and her friend. You know, it would be me and, you know, 500 boys and men and it would be kind of crazy. And so I, but back, back then I never really had that happen. I've run into a lot more recently. Um, How's that right? I, I, you know, I'll walk up someplace and identify myself as the, as the, you know, the GM for the Dresden Files LARP and people will look at, no, you couldn't be the G, you're not the GM. What are you talking about? Um, I wind up with a lot more of um, players coming up after the game to me and telling me how I should have run it different than, you know, I I run our LARP team. It's me, uh, my husband, David, and my best friend, Matt. um, And, people don't come up to them and tell them how they should have run it differently. Mm. They me and do it. And so that's, the, you know, it's very interesting, the gender dynamic there. Um, yeah. Cause it, it, and it's always guys. It's never, it's never female or female players. And we actually are often running with more than half female players. Right. Uh, so it, it, it is interesting. Yeah. Just going back to what you said, uh, originally, um, you were saying that, uh, you were one of the only girls at the convention. Um, and what's the numbers like now as compared with what they were back then? I'd say, you know, it, up to about... I've been going to less game game conventions lately. Uh, the last game that we ran at a Strictly... Most of the games that we run at the Strictly game conventions, GameStorm, uh, Dundercon, um, you know, we've been running almost... 50% female players. Now, I think that female players tend to gravitate toward, gravitate toward the LARPs. Right. Um, at least in my experience, that's what I've seen. Um, I think that the World of Darkness games, th- that was when I noticed suddenly I wasn't the only girl playing anymore. Right. Uh, was back when Vampire was released. Right. Uh, like that, I can, I can totally point to the, you know, early 90s, Vampire, all of a sudden, there are, I'm not the only girl playing, I'm not the only girl in the game store anymore. Right. And so what would you suggest was... uh, I've got two questions for you. The first one I'll go for is, why do you suppose that LARPs appeal disproportionately to women than uh, to men? And when I say disproportionate, I mean relative to the role-playing hobby uh, in general. I don't know. I know why it appeals to me. Sure. um, Which is, uh, it's less focus on mathematics. uh, It's less focus on memorizing statistics and more about the stories. Um, and that's, that's what appeals to it, to me. Um, that was one of the reasons that world of darkness was like, you know, back to your concept of the role-playing soulmate. That was it. I'm like, okay, you mean I can build a character in 10 minutes and start playing? Right. This is fabulous. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And so along with that question, this may be a little bit more challenging to answer. Um, given that there are at least, from the numbers that I've had anecdotally, that approximately, you know, one in three um, role players is women, maybe somewhere around about 30% or, you know, 33% or something like that are role players nowadays are women. But within that, the number of women that are GMs is even smaller. That is to say, you know, like if one out of two men decide that they're going to GM or storyteller, whatever you might want to call it, the number of women is not one out of two. It seems, at least to me, to be considerably less than that. Is that 
sort of go along with what you're saying before about not wanting to have keep to keep track of all these various uh, aspects that um, uh, like stats and so forth that um, appeal to men or some men at least. I don't know if it's that I you know. I think maybe part of it's confidence. You know, as I said, I run into problems with, I run into more problems with players questioning my calls um, than either of my, either of my co-GMs do. Um, I'll have, I'll, you know, I'll say, hey, no, you can't use that bit of information. Your character doesn't know it. And I'll get an argument. Um, And so, you know, it's a harder sell in some ways. Right. Um, it, you know, and I mean, this is again my personal experience. Sure. Um, but you know, and I do. I know a lot of female gamers. I don't know too many female GMs. I know some, but not a ton. Right. Um, so. So you know, the confrontation might be part of it. Men, or that is, some male players are less willing to accept the authority of a of a woman, and that may be not necessarily related to just their role playing life, but uh, to them in general. But do you think that's a, that plays a large part in it? It, you know, it, it's one of the more frustrating aspects for me, um, and it's something I've run into more than more than once. Right. Um, especially because I I tend to be someone who will. I don't do well with rules lawyers because if I'm the GM, I'll throw out the rules if the rules aren't if the rules aren't working for my for my game. Right. Um, and so you know, if someone's going to pull out a book and quote chapter and verse at me, mm. that no, not when I am GMing, the rules aren't necessary. And, and it's a disclaimer I I throw out every time I run a tabletop game that you know the rules are the rules and this is my game. Right. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? That's the um, the idea of you know what whatever's best for the story, and I don't think that that's um, necessarily always the rules. Um, but along with that, do you, does that ever create a problem for, with consistency for you? Because I think that's of all of the aspects of role playing, that's probably the thing that's the most uh, sacrosanct. You know, like you've got to maintain that internal consistency in order to keep people on board. Do you find that? No, because well, with the, with the LARPs that we run at the conventions. Because of the fact that we've written the rules, we don't wind up having to throw out somebody else's rule that doesn't make sense for our game. Sure. sure. Um, you know, it, it winds up being something that happens more when I'm working in an established world, like, you know, the, the online game that I run. Um, we, we had people who wanted to play werewolf player characters in a mostly vampire game. Right. And so we had to go and throw out a bunch of the canonical rules about humanity and worm taint and, you know, ways that we can, I had to, I had to completely eliminate most of the tribes of werewolves because it's like, no, there's no way that your tribe is going to be getting along with these vampires. Right. Uh, and I just, there's too much built in. Um, and so we just had, you know, we, we've had to sit down and build, like, you know, a canonical, it's not really, I, I, I want to say canonical Bible, but that's not really what, I, what I'd call it. You know, right. we've got a canon guide for this is what we're doing with our game. Right. And is that uh, something that you come up with with the gyms, or is it like everybody that's going to be in the lab, you sit down for, you know, for one evening and say, okay, this is, we're going to be kicking off this lab on day X, these are... 
the ideas we've got regarding the rules? Does this work for everybody, or is this something that you just you and the GMs um, sit down with? Well, in this in this case, it's a, it's actually it's it's not a LARP. It's a forum. It's a forum based online game. Oh, I was talking about a, the larger question, but sure, tell me yeah. about the forums there to start with. Um, so. In this case, you know, the World of Darkness, where, where we've gone and thrown out thrown out a good chunk of the World of Darkness canon, mm-hmm. um, basically what we what we did as GMs, and it's again, it's a collaborative GM team, was um, we basically said, okay, this is the deal. We're, we've made we've made these changes at the beginning of the game, right. and so it, it it was all announced. It was not something that we that we did in tandem with the players so much, but the players all were given the information when they entered the game. Right. Um, and for the most part, it's been working out pretty well. Good. And so presumably then that's not the group you uh, have had trouble with the rules lawyering and stuff like that with? Not for the most part. Um, I, I don't think, no, I don't think we've had that many, that many problems with that particular group of players. Right. Um, Right. Well, I think people have got a pretty good idea of uh, where you're coming from and, and where you're at right now with your role playing. So, what's your favorite book or supplement? I got to say, Werewolf, Werewolf the Apocalypse, um, the first edition. Um, you know the Call book? paperback edition. Right. And how did that differ from the the hardcover with the with the holes in the front of it? Because I I owned both of them, and I didn't at the time at least see a reason for keeping both of them. And I think that I sold my first edition soft cover one. But uh, what was the difference between those two? Is it just the health levels went one two three four five rather than one two two five five? I'm trying to remember, and I don't. I just remember you know, that that's just that's the book that I've worn to death. Right, I see. Okay, so you've got sort of an emotional attachment to yeah. that specific copy rather than to that specific rule set. Yeah. Right. So on the flip side of that, if you could cause one game or supplement to cease to exist, what would it be? It doesn't necessarily mean that you think it's badly written. It could just be because it's wronged you in some random way or, you know, like it came along at a time in your life you were associated with some unpleasant event. With all due apologies to Mike Pondsmith, who is a wonderful, wonderful man who I, I, I adore on a personal level. Teenagers from outer space. Why is Teenagers that? Teenagers from outer space. No. <laughs> this needs to go away. Why is that? Um, I, you know, I don't like farce games. Um, no. I'm all for comedy in a game, but game, the paranoia, Teenagers from outer space, just they don't do it for me. Um, but very specifically, what that particular game has done is we, we've had a lot of people running teenagers from outer space LARPs lately in right. this area. Um, and it has caused the term adult to be um, used as a term for the game master in a LARP. And so we get people at our LARPs calling, we need an adult over here. Nice. And, oh, <laughs> it's, it's bad. <laughs> you know, so that... Just absolutely drives me nuts. Right, right. So yeah, I, I played Paranoia a few times, and uh, I think that the problem is that you know, like you're saying, with it being a farce, you never got, you never get that, you know, attachment to your character. And the idea is to sort of burn through your avatars as, as many times as, or as quickly as possible. And uh, yeah, I, I, I agree with you in that those those sort of farce games don't 
at least for me, sort of inspire longevity. I mean, Pepsi never designed that way, but I like to f- try and feel the connection with my with my character rather than seeing it just as a as a tool to get things done. And when the tool gets broken, I get a whole new one to uh, start again with. But you know, maybe that's just uh, maybe that's just us. Um, yeah, that's that's very much how I, I I never cared for paranoia. Right. Um, after the first time my my clone got executed for littering, I'm like, oh, seriously, people, can can we play something else? Yeah, I think that creating that bond with your character is an important part of investment in the in in the game, and you certainly wouldn't do that if you were going to get, like you say, executed for uh, for littering. That's nothing against paranoia. The games that I played were fun, but it it tapped into a different type of role playing for me. Yeah. It's not something that I'd want to do, you know, like as an ongoing campaign. Maps, you know, it's like a one shot or or maybe at a stretch too. But I don't think I could you know routinely do that type of uh, role playing you know i've had a lot of fun with actually both tfos and um paranoia but they're they're just they're not my favorite right so so that whole adult thing just needs to stop (laughs) there's a request for anybody that's larping in the bay area or on the west coast of uh, america no more adults please so are there any uh, games or supplements that you're particularly looking forward to you know, I I am not a big fan of learning new rule systems, so I don't follow them um, as much as I probably should. Um, so not really. Okay, one of the sort of movements in uh, gaming at the moment, one of the things that's sort of catching. Um, fire at the moment is this um old school gaming revival people are looking back through their old versions of uh, original dungeons and dragons and and stuff like that and, and taking inspiration from that to create um some one of the terms used in reference to, the, to them is uh, retro clones and stuff like that is that something you're familiar with at all not really because it strikes me as as you started out with with basically first edition Dungeons and Dragons, um, that sort of thing might appeal to you, or do you feel, at least for you, that that's sort of a one-way, it's a one-way journey. You begin at the at the advanced Dungeons and Dragons end, and you move on to um, through various incarnations until you get to the story games end. No, you know, I mean, I'll, I still enjoy a good D and D game, if I, especially if I've got the right players that I'm playing with. Um, but it's. With me, it's it's an, it's a time issue. You know, when I was when I was a teenager and we would play, the problem was always, oh, where can we play? My mom's mad at me because last time we didn't clean up at our house, so we can't play at my house. Oh, can we play? You know, at the library? No, the library says we're being too loud. Um, can we play at the local gaming store? Well, no, they went out of business, um, and we could never find a place. And now, you know, all my friends, all my players we're all grown-ups we've got jobs we've got lives we some of us have got kids and the time just isn't there anymore and so a lot of the time you know right now this year especially most of my rpg time has been eaten up by trying to write by writing these um one-shot convention larks right and i haven't had nearly the time to play the way that i used to right Uh, you know we used to do a once a month um once a month RP session, and now it's a once a month GM meeting where we're hashing out who needs to write the next thing. Right. Uh, yeah. And going back to those early days of Dungeons and Dragons, you mentioned you know like making a mess here and then not going to play at the library and so on and so forth. Did you ever encounter anybody that was just anti role playing because of stuff they'd heard in the media? You know, it was funny. One of the librarians at our school library was very much anti-role-playing because of stuff both that she'd heard at the media and at church. And it was actually kind of interesting because 
during the course of my years in high school and the friends, you know, my, my, my little brother was four years, or he was a freshman my senior year. So he came into the school behind me. And, um, so I was still in touch with a lot of the, a lot of the people that were still in the school. Um, she really changed her mind about it. Um, right. cause she, you know, she got to know these neat kids who were the kids that were coming in and, you know, we were borrowing the books and yeah, once in a while we'd get thrown out of the library for being too loud. Right. Um, you know, I, I've run into it from time to time, especially with friends, parents right. who look, Oh no, no, you know, don't, don't do that. Um, my mom was a little nervous about it at first, right. um, even though her sister was a player. Um, right. it was actually very funny for my aunt's. Um, my aunt just turned 70 September and for her birthday, my mom was going to throw her a pool party. And I said, you've got to be kidding me. She doesn't want a pool party. We're doing an RPG. Right. Right. Um, and so we got my entire family, uh, my cousin, his wife, my husband, my brother, and my mom and I, and we all got together and we played a, um, urban fantasy, um, tabletop game. Um, and, who knew my mom's actually a really good role player. Right. Um, she'd never played before, but you know, she, she got into it. Right. Um, so it was, you know, kind of, it was, it was interesting. Yes. Well, I mean, it sounds like without wanting to uh, be rude, it sounds like your um, aunt is getting on in, in years. And, and one of the things that I was thinking about is whether, um, people are going to be into role-playing games in uh, old folks' homes, like whether that's something that we'll start to see in future, like the, uh, the activities coordinated for the old folks' home will be responsible for you know, running a Dungeons & Dragons game every Tuesday night um, after the bridge games have, have finished. You know, I, I, I want to find that old folks' home because that, that's just that's awesome. That's an awesome idea. You know, it was funny. I had a friend. I have a friend who's, you know, he's only... I think he's like 15 or 16 years older than me, but he's had a lot of health problems and he's been in and in and out of convalescent hospitals, um, with various health problems. And we've played, um, I, I've played more than one RPG in a hospital room or in a nursing home. Right. Um, when I've had a friend who's been there, cause it's, it's something that's nice and portable and it's something that you can do. It, you know, if you've got a friend who's in the hospital, who's a gamer, having five people come and hang out and, his hospital room and play an RPG is one of the best ways to take him away from there. Um, sure. and so it's something I've done a lot. Yeah, I can certainly see that. I know that uh, role-playing appeals for various obvious and some perhaps not obvious reasons to people with disabilities of all, all types. And although being old is not a disability, it certainly does carry with it some of the same problems that uh, other disabilities, physical and otherwise, uh, can have. So... Yeah, I'm. Uh, yeah, maybe that's a business I should. Nobody steal that. Um, that's a business I should go into as the traveling RPG guy. I'll go from rolling. Pl- uh, I'll go from old folks' homes to old folks' homes. You know, running games for them uh, once a week. That I think be, that's great. Yeah, I think that could be a career. Nobody steal that. Um, so, uh, if you could only be a player or a GM, which would you choose? GM, absolutely. I'm a better GM than I am a player. Um, I'm less likely to get distracted. I'm less likely to get bored and go off on some weird tangent. Um, I've got more to do and more to keep me interested and involved as a GM. Um, I'm not a very good player. I'm a really good GM. Right. Um, and I, I run into it again and again. I, I, I do much better if I'm the one who knows all of the, um, I want to know all the secrets. 
Right. Is it a control thing to a degree? Like, do you think that, that people that are prefer to be GMs than to be players? It's more about, like, keeping all your ducks in a row and liking to know everything ahead of time? Or do you think that uh, there are all kinds of different reasons that people would would prefer to be GMs? Because, as I say, people, are, in my experience, and, and this show has made that idea concrete for me, is that people will intrinsically be one or the other for, for whatever reasons, and I'm always struggling to try and find why that might be. Do you have any ideas about that? Well, there's a couple of things um, for me. It, part of it is a control issue. Um, I've got a, a certain degree of social anxiety, and I find that when I'm the GM... Because of the fact that, you know, I don't wind up with people keeping secrets from me. And so I'm not going to find myself in an awkward position where somebody's sitting back and going, ha ha, tricked you. I, I remember I, I played in a number of um, Society for Interactive Literature, um, which is a, a LARP group that used to do games at conventions in California about you know, 10, 15 years ago. Right. Um, I played in a lot of their games, and I often would f- find myself sitting with somebody in the big wrap-up at the end going, ha-ha, I had the item that you wanted all along, and you didn't know it, ha-ha. And that just annoys the heck out of me. Right. Um, and as the GM, I'm never in that position. Is that uh, part of it? Like, are you supposed to be trying to do that? Like, does there does do you find that, uh, and, uh, and you can, this is a two-tiered question, do you find that people do do that during LARPs and to put one over on another person rather than the character out of necessity putting one over on another person. So LARPing to a degree in a convention setting can be competitive. Um, and second of all, um, is that sort of thing okay in a regular you know, ongoing LARP? I don't like it when people do it. Um, I, I strongly discourage it in my games. Um, you know, I... That's one of the reasons we we do allow repeat players um, is because I believe that it is entirely possible to keep out-of-character information out-of-character. And so, you know, I I hate seeing people do that. Those are are the players that are going to annoy me. Um, And some of them aren't going to be invited back. Right. Um, You know, yeah, no, it's not nice behavior and it's not something i like to see and it's something i try and actively discourage right sure i mean i can understand why that would be the case you know like if it's if it's sort of an outside the game i'm sort of scoring one up on you just just because and it has no effect on the story or at least it 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 should the story should in fact prohibit that type of behavior then yeah i can see how that would reduce the enjoyment for uh for certainly for the target but maybe for people in, in general you know people bringing that type of attitude to a larp um, and do you find that happens more in a LARP than in a tabletop game? Like, because you are your character, do people get more invested in this sort of score or winning uh, element of it? I think I think sometimes, you know, no, I think there are people who play games to win, mm. and there are people who play games to tell a story. Um, and, you know, we, we've run into, we run into both. Um, every time I, every time we run a game we're going to have a couple of people who are like yeah no I, I i achieved all my goals i won um and then once in a while we'll have someone and i i don't remember the guy's name um but he played um he played one of the characters that had a fallen angel whispering in his ear um at the game at the run that we did at um big bad con right and he wound up 
because I usually am the one playing, um, doing the voices for the fallen angels in the game. Um, I'm standing next to him going, okay, you know, I can get you out of this as he's standing facing, you know, the big mob boss and he's got a big Tommy gun and he's about to get, you know, just blown to pieces. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, come on, I can teleport you out. You know, you've got a way out. And the player looked at it and went, no, no, it's better this way. Just, you know, I'm not even going to, don't even make him roll. He, he, he kills me. And it was just, it was this beautiful bit of, no, this is better for the story. Right. Um, and it was, and it was, it was, that's the kind of thing I love to see in a, in a game is someone who's willing to throw out their, their victory to make the story better. Right. Um, cause often it, you know, often the worst stuff that happens in games winds up winds up telling just great stories. Yes, oh for sure. Yeah, that uh, that sort of plays a little bit into a later question we're going to come up to. But yeah, it's it's always the the dealing with defeat or the or the defeat, but in an interesting way that seems to make the the stories the most interesting. You know, like this idea of you know, like every scene should end in failure except for the for the last one in one way or another because that's what you know keeps people interesting. That's why that's what keeps people turning pages in novels. If the if the the hero of the story. Um, was successful and everything they did right from the off, then the story would be, you know, 20 pages long and nobody wants to read a story that's, um, you know, like uh, the hero achieves his victory without any kind of struggle at all. It's the struggle that people like, I think, and that sounds like it's also true for uh, for LARPs as well as, um, as well as for tabletop games. Absolutely. So when you're a GM, uh, and this is of a tabletop game, what sort of uh, preparation do you do? You know, for tabletop games, not as much. Um, I, I do a lot of borrowing plots from obscure novels that I read 20 years ago. I'll, I'll take a basic story concept and just embroider on it. Um, or I'll take, you know, one of the things I did a lot with the Serenity game that we were running was I would say, okay, how can I get my player character out of the game for this? Right. Um, so, you know, one time I, one time I laid her up sick in the infirmary with some plague and there was this, you know, we had to get the vaccine through the, through the, um, embargoes and get it out to the, out to the, um, rim world where they needed it. Um, one time I framed her for murder. Right. Um, and so, the, you know, that'll give me my basic plot and I'll sometimes sketch out a couple of NPCs, but for tabletop games, I mostly wing it. Uh, because of the fact that I want to be, I, I hate being a play, being a player in a game where you're being herded through a, a very specific occasion. You do this, and now you do this, and now you, it, it drives me crazy as a player. Right. So I try not to do it as a GM. Right. Are you able to switch that off if you're playing a con game? Um, you know, with the con games, we. Um, I'm thinking specifically of a, of a tabletop con Same. game because, um, you know, as a, as a GM of, the, of a tabletop um, con game, um, I, I have found over the years that by necessity, you know, the games have to be plot-driven. If you give the characters an opportunity to, to flesh out some of their ideas about themselves, then that, that's great. But for the purposes of getting the narrative finished in the space of, you know, three and a half hours, having your story to a degree on on rails is, is, is part of it. And, and when I'm playing in a con game, I know for myself as a player, I'm thinking, okay, there's, this is, you know, like it's a plot game for the most part. And although my, you know, my character can um, act out um, 
its various character attributes along the way. I really need to try and stay on the straight and narrow so that I don't diminish the enjoyment for the other people at the table by trying to derail a story and, and take it take it elsewhere. Is that something you find yourself having to, to do, or does that sort of come no, naturally with playing a con it's game? Not, it's not the way I run games. I, I am more likely to be running a, the, the, the initial... Um, you know, the initial plot plot concept is going... There are going to be reasons that the characters are going to want to do what they're going to do. For sure. And I just... I just... I have generally found that when I run... The games I run, I can usually just leave them alone. Yes. Um, oh, sure. If you've got a... If you've written a con game specifically with characters, with character motivations, then yes, that will... That will drive the story along in a, in a, in a certain direction. So, I guess... Um, from a standpoint of you know like a, a plot driven rather than a character driven game that's one way you can get your uh, con game to to have a satisfactory conclusion within three and a half hours you know by by giving those characters motivations that will will um, conflict with other characters' motivations and then so during the process of the story you know that those will play out and will reach a natural conclusion but uh, keeping in mind that um, it varies greatly from a tabletop game to a, a LARP, um, when you're playing a tabletop game, what's the perfect number of people to role-play? I think the best games I've been in have been GM three players. Right. And why uh, do you think that is? Because it's enough that you that the characters are... like with, If you've only got two players, you don't have... Any, the characters can't play off each other that much um with three you get you get that interpersonal dynamic going but it's a small enough number that the gm is not overwhelmed with trying to you're less likely to wind up with a split party yes Um, yes. you are more likely to be able to keep you know keep everybody together you know the emerald rose song never split the party i i hate split party games because half the game is always bored. Um, so, you know, with three, you don't get that. Um, you get enough. It's a small enough number that you've got. The GM's got enough attention for all of the players, but it's enough to drive inter interpersonal plots. Right. Um, all of the best games I've ever played in just about have been a three player game with the exception of once or twice with the serenity game that we ran, which was, as I said, it was more, it was seven. Um, but that, that was a very special circumstance with some really amazing players. So, yeah, I think that you can get, I think that four, three players, one GM is, is the magic number, at least for me. But uh, do you find that uh, the older you've become and the more responsibilities the people that are uh, in your gaming group have um, sort of accumulated children and, and jobs and so forth, um, do you find that having a fourth uh, player is a good idea for the nights when somebody can't make it and you, know, you want to maintain that dynamic? Because if, if you've got a hard three and a GM and one person's not able to make it, you're all, it's almost a situation where you can't really play, or at least you can't play the same sort of game that you've played in the past. So, do you think that um, having a sort of a buffer person is is a worthwhile thing to entertain, or um, does your group sort of put role playing above other types of things? I don't mean necessarily children and stuff like that, but you know, like if I'm going to do something, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to go off to a hockey game just because you know, it happens to be on the same night. I'm going to choose hockey over role playing. Well, you know, I mean, with the Serenity game, which is the one that, that we have done 
that I, that I've done most recently. Um, I think that's the longest running game I've played since I had since I had my daughter. Right. Um, and that game, we did have more players, and we were constantly, you know, it was sort of a pain. We were constantly having to write excuses into why is this character not here this game. Right. Um, but it, you know, it did work pretty well to have the extra characters because we had more, then we had more, you know, if, if three people couldn't make it, we still had a game. Right. Uh, so, it, yeah, I think that, in that case, it does make more sense to have more players. Right. So um, how often do you role play and for how long? You've already sort of talked about the difficulties you're having currently with, uh, with getting uh, games together. So just thinking about your Serenity game, how long did uh, you guys play at a session then and how often did you play? We were playing about five-hour sessions, five hour sessions, maybe four. Um, you know, five including, yeah, we usually hired the babysitter. The way, the way we did the logistics is everybody brought their kids and we hired a babysitter to play with the kids while we played. Right. So the kids were all there on at the house while we were playing and, but they had somebody else who was in charge of, of watching them. Right. Um, and it actually worked really well. I was going to say, that's a good idea. Actually. I hadn't it occurred to me to, to do that, but, um, did it take a special type of babysitter or, you know, is there, uh, I don't know if, is there like a particular, you know, sort of um, skill set that you should be looking for in somebody that's going to take care of, uh, I don't know how many kids you had, but I'm guessing it's more than standard two or three. It, it was, usually it was three, actually. Oh, okay, um, all right. You know, you, one of the things, you can hire somebody younger because you're going to be there in case of an emergency. Um, right. So, and it, you know, it, it really did work out pretty well. Um, that You know, they they take movie and popcorn into, into my daughter's room and they have a great old time. Hmm. Um, so yeah, we'd usually have the baby sitter there for about five hours. So that was probably four hours of actual play. Right. And we weren't, we weren't able to get together more than once a month. Right. Um, and you know, what happened with that group, it fell apart because life got in the way and we stopped being able to make the time. Right. Um, so yeah, that's. I think that's a pretty common thread for for people. You know, like this. Uh, you know, you don't get to play as much as you did when you were when you were younger, just because of those those extra responsibilities. And although it's possible to put role playing at the top of your list of things that you that you want to do, the list of things that you have to do gets progressively longer the older you get, at least until your children leave home, and then again you sort of end up with some uh, with some free time. So I can certainly sympathise and empathise with uh, with those sentiments. Right. Right now, you know, the, the role-playing time that I get, I, as I said, I'm, I'm running a forum-based World of Darkness game. Um, and, you know, I'll put about an hour in on that a couple of times a week. Um, and then pretty much all of my other time goes into prepping for the big con games. Um, and so, you know, we, we have a GM meeting about once a month. And, you know, it lasts about five, six hours. Right. Um, so. <laughs> That's a long meeting. Yeah. <laughs> They're pretty elaborate games. It takes yeah. an entire ream of paper and three print cartridges to print to print one. Sure, I can imagine that with so many people to wrangle at once and having to have so many contingencies in play, it must be pretty difficult to sort of keep everybody hemmed in to a degree. It, it's it's difficult, but it's just it's like a work of art. You you watch it all come together, and you watch these characters interact. You know, the players interacting as these characters, and it just like it's amazing. It the the synergy when it all comes together right, it, it, it's 
that's the payoff for, for all of the hundreds of hours of work that go into writing it is just watching it all, it all come down. I remember watching the, the GMs from soul West, you know, 15 years ago and watching the expressions on their face during the big climactic scene and going, gosh, they look like they're having fun. And now yeah. that I'm the one doing it, it's like, Oh yeah, that's fun. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Like that, uh, those sort of perfect moments, you get them tabletop and, and lapping by the sound of things as well. You know, when all of your, uh, when necessarily all of your plans come together, but you know, like the, the, the perfect sort of wrap up occurs organically. Like you've sort of envisaged it, but you're not quite sure if it's going to come together. But then when you, know, you put all the little seeds in place and it all, you know, works together you know that there's nothing more satisfying than that at least in my opinion um mm. from uh, from gaming so changing gears completely uh should males play females and you can take that either you know they should be required to at least once or um whether it should be allowed and there's a bigger question behind this but let's start there um you know I, you sent me that question and i started to say no absolutely not And then I realized, no, that isn't how I feel at all. The thing is, often the male players that want to play the female characters, not always, but often, are going to annoy me no matter what they're playing. Right. Um, You know, I I, remember, because often they're the creepy guy that hangs out in the comic book store and is obsessed with Sailor Moon, and, you know, they're, they're just very often the ones that want to do that are creepy. And so it, it, not always, you know, I mean, my husband can play a female character wonderfully. Um, you know, I can play a male character though. I tend to not do it in tabletop or LARP games. I tend to, I tend to, that, that, that's where I tend to get into the text-based, um, online RPGs. Um, because of the fact that it's easier to suspend disbelief there. Um, I see you. But, you know, I don't have a problem with it if it's being done by someone who isn't going to bother me ordinarily. Um, You know, I've got I've got a couple of very close friends who are transgender. And, you know, I actually I remember one one is someone who I've known for, you know, back from my early like junior high school and high school gaming days right. and um imagining someone telling him back before he was him that he couldn't play a male character just it's like no that's not fair right. uh, and i totally you know gaming is the time where you can be anything you want to be um and if it's not being done as a creepy you know sexual kick mm. then Absolutely, go for it. But if it is, maybe find someone who is willing to consent to your games. Sure. Um, sure. So. Well, that kind of goes into the, the second part of that question, which is, is there genuine catharsis available from role-playing then? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I love about role playing is it lets it gives me gives me the opportunity to do to do things. I remember when Starship Troopers the movie came out. Um, you know, I I actually I I read the book and was able to disconnect from from it enough to actually enjoy the movie as it was rather than as a really bad adaptation of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm like, yeah, you know, oh. Look at this. Yeah, everybody needs to go join the military. That would be really fun. And I stopped and I went, wait a minute. 
that's really stupid. But you know what I could do is I could do an RPG and I could have, you know, do a military character and that would be really awesome. Um, And, you know, there's a lot of times where I'll find where there's something that would be really fun to do that is just not possible, practical, whatever. And so I'll write it into a game. Um, and that kind of uh, plays into the to one of the next questions I've got. So let's go there now. Um, what's the best and or most inspiring role-playing film or TV show? It doesn't mean it has to be about role-playing, but a la your um, Starship Troopers experience, um, what's the, or that may even be your answer, what's the most inspiring thing that you've, you've seen on television or in cinema and it's just made you go, wow, I want to play a game like that right there. I want to be that character right there. Firefly. Definitely Firefly. That, you know... It, I am not one of the people who is still standing there, fly, you know, waving my 57th Overlanders uh, flag saying, let's bring the series back. But there was so much depth to that universe that didn't get, that didn't get explored in the TV series. Right. Um, and so it, it's, it's a world that I always like to go back and go, hmm, you know, there's so much that didn't get written. Let's go back, let, let's go back and flesh that out in a game. Um, and that was why we were able to stick with that game for three years and have so much fun with it. Um, and that was, that's actually the next setting that we're, that we're working on a LARP in. Um, we're hoping to have a, um, Firefly inspired LARP for, um, GameStorm in March, um, that we're going to run. Right. I think that'd be pretty popular. I know that Firefly is very popular. It doesn't, um, quite do it for me, but I know that a lot of people, uh, are inspired by Firefly and, uh, are still, you know, flying that that same flag, you know, wanting the wanting the show to uh, to come back. So, yeah, I mean, good luck with that. I think the people really enjoy it. I think the, that uh, it's sufficiently accessible in terms of people in costumes and so forth for them to really feel like they are playing that type of uh, that type of game. But and uh, and also that a lot of people love the setting and are quite probably are quite familiar with the uh, so some of the crystallized ideas about that about that universe um, do you as a um sort of and somebody in charge of um, a gm sorry um as somebody who's a gm of a larp do you tend to gravitate towards settings that people have touchstone experiences with or can you run a larp where there are a lot of um things which are completely foreign and alien to the people in the game and if so would you have to do it slightly differently like have a sort of information session ahead of time to talk about stuff you know, so far, mostly what we're run, what we've been running with our with our LARP troop, um, and, and the games I've written, I've I've run. Um, I ran a World of Darkness LARP for a couple of years, um, and you know that one was just simply there was all the canonical information there. You know, all of it was in the books. Um, what we've been running this year have been entirely inspired by Jim Butcher's Dresden Files series. Right. Um, and we are running completely out of the series timeline. Um, we're running with completely original characters. There are no canonical characters appearing in the game at all. Right. Um, but the setting, um, the, the basic world building, the creature types, the powers that you're going to see with the different creatures that work was already done for us. Um, now we do get a lot of players who have absolutely no familiarity with the books. And we learned pretty quickly that we've got to be very careful where we put those players. Um, there are certain characters that you can't just walk in off the street with no familiarity with the series and play. Um, there are others that are going to be fine. Even if you've never, even if you've never, 
you know, even if you've never even seen an episode of the TV series, right. you'll be able to play the character no problem. Um, eventually, our goal is once once we get to the point where people are like, oh yeah, Theater Arcanos, we've played in their games, they're great. We're, we're looking forward to being able to start from scratch and build a world um, and do a completely original game setting. Right. We're just there yet. Right. It sounds ambitious, but I think ultimately rewarding if you're going to put all those things in place. And, and when you say your troop, does that mean that um, when you go around the place, you've got GMs that, that play their part and you've got some sort of seed players whose, whose job in the game is to facilitate the plot and then you've got the people who are just coming into the game with no preconceived notion of what it is that they have to do? Sometimes we've kind of seeded the crowd with with people who've played before and people who know who know us. Um, there are a couple of characters that we are very careful to cast. Um, for anybody who has familiarity with the Dresden Files, we're really careful with our white court vampires. Um, the white court vampires are sexual predators, right. um, and it's really easy to it, it would ruin the game to hand that to to hand those characters to the wrong player. Right. Um, so we've always pre-screened our players for the white court vampires. Right. Um, they, they're, they're always either somebody we personally know and trust, or somebody that was vouched by vouched for by somebody else. Right. Um, and we have our repeat. We have our regulars that show up every, just about every time we run a game. Um, a couple of times we've had, we we've gotten to the point where we keep handing them the same character. Um, it's like, yeah, you do this one really well. Here you go. But um, we don't have non-player characters in the game. Um, I because I'm prone to doing what I've heard called NPC theater, um, where suddenly the NPC takes over the game and suddenly becomes the whole focus of the plot. I know I have a tendency to do that. And so as a result, we deliberately leave out any kind of non-player characters in our LARPs just so that it's all, all player driven. And there's no, there's no um, temptation to become the center of attention. Right. Um, So. So, um, Changing gear again, completely differently. Uh, do you or uh, should GMs fudge dice rolls? It depends on the situation. Um, generally, what I try to do is avoid making dice rolls that need to be fudged. Right. Um, you know, I I would never make a player roll dice for something that you know, like I, I've played in games where. The GMs rolled dice for okay. My character's going to go set out a hat and play a song, right? Um, and I, I look at that and go, okay, did we really need to roll dice for that, or did we need to look at the fact that this is a bard who's got you know charisma eighteen and you know proficiency in like six different instruments? And yeah, of course it was beautiful, right? Um, and so you know, I try not to micromanage on stuff like that and just you know. Except in certain situations of high drama, just let the let the character statistics speak for themselves. Right, sure. Um, and again, if if you're in a situation where the entire crux of your campaign is coming down to a single roll of the dice, there, there's got to be more than one way around the situation. Right. Um, cause it's, it's no fun to have all your planning, go, it, it, everything can go wrong at the drop of the hat in the, in the real world. I don't want that in a role playing game. Oh, sure. Sure. 
I understand what you're uh, you're saying there. Like if you find that you know, depending on the type of system that you're playing, and we did have that caveat in there to start with, but sometimes you find yourself um, uh, forced into a situation where, um, for one reason or another, it's necessary for you to have a dice roll to uh, to resolve something, and. Although, ideally, if you think that the story should go, or that the, the consensus is, or um, you think that a story should go in a certain way, you know, you're still in that situation where you need to let the dice play, the dice play their part. And I'm, I'm struggling for a, and if anybody out there has one, I'm struggling for an example of a situation where um, you should, where you've got to that point. And it's really necessary for you to roll a dice, but there's really only one way that the that the, that the story can go, or at least go satisfactorily. Um, then I'd be interested to to hear uh, what that is. And along those lines, if you come to a situation where the story should really go a certain way, does it rob the drama from the scene? Um, by not rolling the dice. Going back to the idea before of, you know, is it really necessary to roll the dice for something? I know we were talking about something trivial, but there are situations where there's more at stake than that. Um, and the decision is not to roll the dice and just let the story go that particular way. Does that rob it of some, some drama? I don't know. I mean, I can see how there is a certain degree of drama in there, but... Maybe it does, but not enough not enough to ruin it for me. Right. Um, yeah. As you say, there's plenty of uh, randomness, <laughs> unpleasant randomness in the real world without having to make it part of your uh, game. But is there also um, some, like you were saying before, um, you know, stuff that goes wrong. Um, you were talking about the guy that allowed himself to be shot. And it's not a perfect example, but along those lines where, um, you know, stuff going wrong um, yeah, actually I- makes the game better. I've seen I've seen it happen more than once. Um, that the, back to the, the the LARP that I met my husband at. Um, his uh, character wound up getting killed, um, and it was like this huge. It, we've written like probably five different alternate universe. Okay, this is the you know this is what happened with the ghost and the, this and that and the other thing, and so we we wound up you know, writing all of these interesting stories about how how it wound up changing the course of things. You know, it's one of the things I have to remind myself when I'm running a game is, no, when it all goes wrong, that sometimes is the best story. Um, and, I, and I have to catch myself and go, no, no, let it happen. Um, yes. You know, I, when... when George Fitzpatrick, um, who was the police officer with the, with the New Orleans Police Department, died in the first 30 minutes of the World Con game. Um, right. It was very funny because he's died. Oh, he, this character almost always dies right. uh, when we run. Um, and we've changed his role in the game, and he still dies. Right. Um, and it's very funny to listen to the players because, again, over and over again, we keep hearing from the player of the characters, oh, I'm glad I'm dead. It was very freeing. Now I, now I don't have to operate in all the same rules. Right. Um, and so, you know, even, even when it looks like it's going to be an absolute disaster, you know, I'm not likely to kill your player character that you've been playing for three years on a single dice roll. Unless you're unless you're on board with it and are like, oh yeah, no, you know, time time to dial it up a notch for 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 the for the rest of the party. 
I'm ready to die. Um, just because it just, it makes it, as I said, there, there's plenty of unpleasant randomness other places. But then again, you know, when a hacking roll blew, blew up the ship's computer, um, that wound up being just a fabulous storyline. And it was, again, it was just like this random thing. This person was supposed to be like a super hacker, knew how to do everything. Right. And wound up blowing a role. This is, this was the time when I was a player. Right. Um, and blew the role and managed to get a virus that actually like took out the ship's nav computers. And again, that was totally not where the GM was going with the story, but it was one of the best storylines that game that happened with that game. Right. Um, and it was entirely improvised, um, all based on a, all based on a blown die roll. Right. Yeah. That's definitely a perfect, perfect scenario where, uh, of, you know, let the dice play their part. And, uh, yeah. So, so I guess let the dice play your part. If you play their part, if you've got an idea where to go with it, if you don't, then maybe it's better to fudge the role and, you know, if if you know how to make it work, make right. it work. But if you don't, then it, it might be better to fudge the role and let and let the players succeed. Right. So, who is your favorite villain, and why? I, I that's a tough call. Um, it's going to be somebody from a Jim Butcher book, um, and I'm torn um, between his mob boss, um, John Marcone. Um, who is just this, you know, ice cold, um, ruthless, you know, mafia boss, um, who will not permit violence against children, uh, in his presence and, um, always keeps his word and is very smart. Um, then there's, uh, Lara Wraith, who is, again, she's, she's a white court vampire. She's a, um, she's a liar. She's a schemer. She's a manipulator, but she's brilliant and she keeps her word and she, um, you know, she, she's got this sense of honor. Um, so one of the things that I read this essay that Jim Butcher wrote about how to create a, how to create a villain. And I've really taken it to heart, um, in my writing characters to go play in his world. Um, that every villain needs to have three redeeming qualities or three admirable, not redeeming, admirable qualities. Right. Um, so even though, you know, he, this person is thoroughly corrupted and evil, trying to bring about Armageddon, he's also impeccably polite, um, and brutally honest and a genius. Yes. Um, and th- th- that would be Nicodemus, who would be the third character that I, I just, I, I couldn't decide between the three of them because they're all so beautiful. Right. Um, and so that's one of the things I always try and do when I write a villain is I try and, I try and make every character in my games, even the villains, the hero of their own story. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think that that ambiguity is a very important, um, thing to bring to your villains. If the characters aren't, well, first of all, the villain has got to be a suitable um, impediment to them, them achieving right. their own goals. That's, that's his first rule: is he, it, the villain has to be a credible threat. Right, you've got to get some satisfaction from uh, from defeating him, and then outside of that, you know, this idea of having being ambivalent about the um, the villains is an important idea. And, and the four sort of general villains that 
that I've identified, I mean, I've probably missed some and people may not agree, but the four general sort of villains are like the Joker. And the Joker is, you, he's got a goal um, and it's against basically anything that you as a regular human being could want. Um, and his particular type of villainousness, if you like, um, is not, or his particular type of villainy is a better word, um, is not something that you can identify with because he wants to, you know, uh, watch the world burn. So that's the first type of villain, sort of a force of nature, if you will. You can't possibly understand them and then outthink them because their their thought process is completely alien to you. Then you've got somebody like, say, for example, Hannibal Lecter, who sounds similar to um, this white court vampire um, lady that you are talking about from the Dresden Files. And they've got some admirable qualities, but the core is something that you can't... Um, that you can't identify with. You know, Hannibal Lecter likes to eat people. Um, and and from what you were saying there, you know, the white court vampire is, you know, uh, commits crimes against children, which I don't think many people would be able to uh, to get behind. So she sort of falls into that camp a little bit, I think. The third type of villain is somebody who you can completely identify with their ultimate goal, like Hans Gruber is the example I use for that, where, you know, everybody... Um, sees the value in having more money than they could possibly use for various you know, personal selfish type reasons. But everybody can, if not necessarily um, looking for a same goal, uh, the same goal themselves, they can certainly identify with that goal for their villain. So they're on board with the villain's goal, if not necessarily their uh, manners of achi- manner of achieving it, just like Hans Gruber. And then the fourth type of villain, and at least for me, the most interesting type of villain, and it sounds more like your first the first type that you're talking about, the the Marcone fellow, um, is the villain who is only a villain because of the prism of the story. And the, the, the example that I give for that is Superman and Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor is only the bad guy, or at least in some incarnations of him, Lex Luthor is only the bad guy because the story is told through Superman's eyes. If the story was told through Lex Luthor's eyes, then uh, Superman would be the villain, and you know we'd be on side with Lex Luthor. And that's again this idea that you mentioned um, from the Jim Butcher article about you know all of the characters are the heroes of their own story. Mm-hmm. That, you know, one of the things that I would love to do at some point is sit down, and it's that I don't have the time nor the uh, stick to itness. I guess um, I would love to sit down and write a fanfic um, of Doctor Horrible written from Captain Hammer's point of view. Um, because, you know, Dr. Horrible, it's all, you, you're seeing the whole story from the villain's point of view. Um, and I'd love to see it from the other side. Right. Um, and so, it's, you know, it's something that, that just has appealed to me ever since I saw this, saw that show. Right. Was, oh, yeah, let, you know, but let's look at it from another, another perspective, shall we? Right. Um, because you know you're, you're totally you in that you're you're meant to empathize with um, with Billy Doctor Horrible um, and the, 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 the hero of the story is the bad guy. Right. Um, but it would be really interesting to see that from the other start from the other side. Right. So so is there a an empiric, is there a an absolute in terms of a bad guy or does it always depend upon? Um, the way that you are looking at reality? You know, I think, again, I, in the way that reality is, is everybody is the hero of their own story. And yeah, you know, there are people that are crazy and there are people that are bad, and but they all have 
their reasons they got there. Um, and so I don't, you know, one of the things I love about both Joss Whedon, Jim Butcher, um, most of my favorite authors and, and writers are, they, they write a lot of moral ambiguity into everything that they write, where you can see how, you know, how you can sometimes make the right, do the right thing for all the wrong reasons or do the wrong thing for all the right reasons. Right. And then it's just a question of dealing with the circumstances from there. Right. For sure. So if you could become a character in a role-playing game, what would it mean? That doesn't mean you can go ahead and pick up, you know, your favorite book off the shelf and roll up a character and start playing. I mean that you, Michelle McNeil, suddenly became a person in a role-playing game or role-playing setting, but it wasn't a game anymore. It was actually you in your life. Like, what would I do? What would I want? Who would you want to be? Like, all of a sudden, you became became Gandalf in a Lord of the Rings game, or you became Fox Mulder in a Project Twilight game, or you became, you know, um, Mal in a Serenity game. You know, it, it would be some sort of clericy healer type character. Um, th- those are all. Th- that's always what I want to play, and that, that's what I would have. You know, if I if I had to pick a super superpower, it would be the lay on hands and fix what's broken healer. Um, you know, or so that would probably be my first pick. You know, the the super genius th- philanthropist healer doctor type. Um, mm-hmm would be probably what I'd pick. Right. Um, unless, of course, I decided to play a, you know, mad scientist or something else. Um, right. Would you... Oh, that was a beautiful um, a beautiful mad scientist laugh there as well. I think you might be well-suited to that type of role. Well, my, my one of my favorite current characters is... She's, she's a vampire character. Um, she's a Malkavian, and she was... She was a rocket scientist, and now she's obsessive-compulsive and insane... Um, but she still builds the most beautiful, wonderful inventions, and she's a ton of fun to play. Right. Um, so, and so going along with uh, being a cleric, are you, would you be happy being beholden to a uh, god? It all depends on the god. That's one of the reasons I like the, the uh, White Wolf game so much. Is I, I, I love the I love uh, werewolf. Um, I love the theology that is in that game. And so, you know, I, I usually pick to play a Thayer healer when I, when I write up a werewolf character, right. um, because of the fact that I like it generally in a D and D game, I usually wind up writing my own God. Right. Um, and I, I, you know, I hand the whole fit. Here's my religion. Here's my character. Let me play it as it is, please. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So, you know, I, I, I don't do so, so well in the established, um, canonical unless it's something i really really enjoy um like the white wolf one which it's like okay yeah this is about what i would have written if i'd written it myself right i'll pick this one right yeah i like the idea if somebody was to come to a game with their own god written up and all that type of stuff i think i'd be uh, be pretty happy about that save me having to do all that uh, work but also it's a good indication of the places that you know that player um wants to take that character so you know, I think that uh, if you're prepared to do that, then I think your GM would be very happy with that. I, I, hand, I handed my last D&D GM like a three-page write-up of here's my theology. And nice. he looked at it and went, oh, I can play with this. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> so 
talking about gods and, and randomness, uh, do you uh, have dice superstitions? Not really. Um, though I have been like my, my friend Matt, who's he's he's uh, he's one of my co GMs for Theater Arcanos. He played in that Serenity game that we were in for a long time, and his character he kept blowing rolls like constantly every time he rolled the dice. He was great until the dice came out. Right. Um, every roll he blew. Um, and it was like, I mean, seriously, five, 10, 15 rolls in a row. So I went and bought him a new set of dice for uh, Solstice gift that year. <laughs> like, okay, seriously, stop. And did that help? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, hoped it would help, but it did not. <laughs> so what's your role-playing elevator pitch, including your go-to example of play? You know, I don't know. I'm... It... Role-playing games are, um, it's interactive storytelling. Um, it's a chance for you to, um, take, take a story and instead of sitting back and going, why didn't the character do this? You get to make the decision yourself. Um, you know, it, it's, it's an impermanent, role-playing, especially large for me, they're an impermanent art form. Um, it, it's, you sit there and it's never going to be the same twice. Um, but it, it's still, it, the synergy when it all comes together is like a work of art. Yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's performance art really, isn't it? it? Performance art, but it's also, you know, there's, there's a lot of it that's written down and already established too. So it's, it, you know, I, I love impermanent art forms. I, I, carve pumpkins i decorate cakes i make gingerbread houses i do larps that's right that's my that's my kind of art is the stuff that isn't going to be there in a couple of weeks right yeah enjoy it while it's there because it won't be there for long Mm -hmm. right so you like making snowmen as well um you know i live in california we don't (laughs) have a lot of snow where i live um but they're fun when i can get up to the snow (laughs) (laughs) so uh, here's the uh, question for all the marbles then um, sort of bringing everything together that we've been talking about. Totaling 100, system plus GM plus players. I'm going to put the system at the lowest, at the lowest, maybe like 10 to 15. Because um, if you've got a good player and a good GM, you can play for five hours before you realize nobody remembered to bring dice. I have had that happen. Right. Um, you know, this, the, I, I especially because I tend to be one to throw out the system when it's getting in the way of my fun. Right. Um, the system's going to be the lowest important for me. Um, though the setting rather than the system can be very important. Um, I'm, I'm far more interested in the setting of the game, but that's going to be more in the GM category. Um, I think you're more likely to have an excellent time, you know, a really exceptionally good time if you've got a bunch of good players than if you've got a good GM Um, though I've played with GMs that are just like amazing and can take, you know, newbie players who have no idea what they're doing and make an amazing game, um, out of it. Um, but you know, so I'd say probably, okay, so we put 10 there, we'll give 35 to the GM, 45 to the players, um, just because it, it, Without good players, you could be the best GM ever, and still the game's not going to be as good as it is if 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 we've got a crummy GM and I've got a if I, and I've got another another 
three, four players that are fabulous, we can get around a bad GM. Right, we're still ten short there. Huh? We're still we're still ten short. We've got uh, ten, thirty-five, and forty-five. Oh, okay. Um, all right, then let's go up to fifty. Let's go to let's go forty and fifty. See, math is not my strong suit. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, okay. So then we'll go for forty GM, fifty players, ten system. Ladies and gentlemen, Michelle McNeil. That's it for episode 24 of Penny Red. What are you scoundrels still doing hanging around here? Head off to endangeredanimalsihaveshot.com and pick up a copy of my riveting tale of stalking some of the most dangerous and delicious animals on the planet. Endangeredanimalsihaveshot.com